Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're going to keep going here in our series in Luke, and I'm going to read you the first 11 verses here. These stories in the Gospel of Luke are just so rich. And I had so much fun preaching this last night, and, uh, and, and just, it's just such a rich story, and there's so much stuff here. And some of you are here this morning, and you're here with all kinds of anxieties. Some of you are here with marriage problems, and some of you are here with financial problems. And you know what? It's just amazing to get together and hear the Word of God preach and let the Holy Spirit move in our hearts. And I just believe He's really going to touch every one of us here today. So I'm going to read this story, and uh, and then we'll get into this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Him, that's Jesus, to hear the Word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and He saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. We did that already, right? And I can hardly wait to get to this. Closer to the end of the message, we'll get into that. But, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with them were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes and let's pray. And then we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, we love you. You are the answer to all of our problems. If we would just submit ourselves to you, every area of our lives, if we would submit ourselves to you, you would fill us with so much peace and joy. It would be unbelievable. And you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is set on you. Help us to set our minds on you this morning. Give us hope. Uh, change our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit where we can't even change them ourselves by our own self-discipline and will. Change our hearts as we listen to your word preached. In, G- in your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, I want to start my message. I, I, I considered cutting this out yesterday afternoon and this first part because I was trying to squish everything in, but then I decided to keep it because uh, in this first part, I want to explore a couple of things here. They're going to give you background. The whole time we're in the Gospels, sometimes we read the, the Gospel stories and, and they're kind of flat, there's not lots of detail, and so sometimes the stories feel just a little bit flat, and we don't have the color of the relationships and stuff, and I want to take a little bit of time at the beginning of this message and bring out some of the color of what's going on here, and I'm going to do that by talking about a possible contradiction. There's skeptics that, that call Luke chapter 5 a contradiction, and they compare Luke chapter 5 with John chapter 1, and they say that the story there in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus meets Peter is totally different than the story in John chapter 1 where, where Jesus meets, meets Peter. And so they say, it's a contradiction. Look, you can't trust the Gospels and all sort of stuff. Now, as you're going to see in just a moment, it is completely not a contradiction. But thanks to them calling it a contradiction, we're going to look at this and you're going to get some more color in the story. All right? You're going to get some background on Jesus and Peter's relationship. So if we go to John chapter 1, I'm going to read you a different story, not quite as long, but uh, this is the day after Jesus' baptism, and it says this. The next day again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. So John the Baptist had disciples, okay? Jesus doesn't have disciples yet. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And I love this. Look at, look at Jesus. Like sometimes we have this idea that every time Jesus meets a person, it's this radical call to take up your cross and follow me and leave everything. Uh, but I love here, actually, uh, Jesus, when he would get to know people, look at this. He said to them, come and you will see. Come and you will see. The radical call comes later. But the first thing is, they haven't even met him yet. He says, come and see where I'm staying. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, who are these disciples of John the Baptist? What are their names? So we're going to find out in the next verse. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Okay? So John the Baptist had disciples, and one of those disciples was Peter's brother, uh, Andrew. Okay? He first found him, and then the first thing he does after he meets Jesus, so he goes to Jesus' house and meets Jesus. And then the first thing he does after that, he's so excited, he first found his own brother, next verse, uh, Simon, uh, that's Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So this is Peter's brother, Andrew, introducing uh, Peter to Jesus. And then look what happens in the next line. I love this. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Uh, well, I love that. Only the God of the universe can change your name the first time he meets you. Like, just the confidence, right? You walk up to him for the first time. I don't like your old name. Here's your new name, okay? Only God can do that, right? I don't like Simon. Your parents messed up. They weren't listening to me. It's Peter now, okay? And uh, so he just changes his name right off the top, okay? Now, you say, um, uh, where's the contradiction there? Well, this is what skeptics say. And again, many of you will see through this immediately. It really is amazing to me. Many, much of what passes as skepticism these days of the Bible is really just people desperate not to believe will grab onto anything. But people look at these two stories. What some skeptics will do is they'll take these two stories and see, say they're totally different. In one, Peter is introduced, or Jesus is introduced to Peter by his brother Andrew, has nothing to do with any boats or preaching. In another one, and, and they're at the Jordan River, and another one, they're at the Sea of Galilee, and it involves a boat and all this sort of stuff, okay? And so they say, see, the stories are totally different. This is a contradiction, okay? And you say, well, Chris, well, what would you say that? And I would say, I agree with them. They're right. The stories are totally different. It's not a contradiction. They're two different events. See, uh, people just assume sometimes when they read Luke chapter 5 that in Luke chapter 5, this is the first time Jesus ever met Peter. But that's just a wrong assumption. Luke just doesn't include all the details that led up to it beforehand. John gives us some extra information because he was one of the apostles and he was actually there for it. So in John chapter 1, we have Peter meeting Jesus and becoming a believer. Jesus is my Messiah. In Luke chapter 5, we have, this isn't Jesus, Jesus already knew Peter. See, we have this idea like it was instantaneous, um, that Jesus meets Peter for the first time, gets in his boat, and then right after that says, leave everything and follow me. But actually, Peter had known Jesus probably for some months before. And this is actually true of, and again, like I said, this just gives a little color to some of the stories. This is probably true in almost all the cases of the disciples is we have this idea that Jesus called them into ministry and they left everything to follow him instantaneously. In many cases, they probably had some kind of relationship with him beforehand. And so you can see the gentleness and the generosity of Jesus building a relationship and then drawing people to a place. So what's happening in Luke 5 is not Peter getting introduced to Jesus. In Luke 5, that's not Peter getting called into a relationship with Jesus. In Luke 5, what we have is Luke being called into full-time ministry. Follow me, leave your fishing job and come on the road with me and go into full-time ministry with me. That's what's happening in Luke 5. And John 1 just tells us when they actually just first met, when Peter actually becomes a believer, he's the Messiah. Okay, does that make sense? 
Okay, really, really important. Now, I want to go back to Luke chapter 5, and with some of that as background, I want to look at the last two verses of Luke chapter 5, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time here in this message. Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 10 and 11, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And when they brought, had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, this little statement there, they left everything and followed him, is a formula that Luke uses over and over again. He uses that exact same statement. Every time Jesus calls one of his disciples in the book of Luke, he always says, and they left everything and followed him. So this is really important to Luke, that we know that when the disciples were called to follow Jesus, they left everything to follow him. Now, it's a very, uh, it's a famous verse, and it's a favorite verse that, uh, for many conference speakers, especially if you go to a missions conference or something, it's a very famous verse, a, a popular verse that when a conference speaker wants to get really radical and he wants to call everybody in the room to a radical uh, following of Christ, he'll say, this is what the disciples of Jesus are called to. We're all called to leave everything and follow Jesus, right? And many of us have heard this passage preached before over and over again, and we have this feeling, most of us, as we read this verse, we have this feeling of kind of nebulous fear and guilt. We actually don't even want to read it. Because we're not actually sure what does that mean. Leave everything and follow Jesus. So all the disciples left everything and followed Jesus. The conference speakers tell us, this is the call of every believer. Leave everything and follow Jesus. And it just sounds so right. And yet none of us is doing it. Isn't that true? How many of you live in a house? Okay. Some of you live in an apartment. You didn't leave that for Jesus? You bad self-fund Christians. Most of you drove a vehicle here today. All of you, thankfully, as I just glance over, are wearing clothes today. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. Right? So what is this? Leave everything. There's this idea sometimes, you know, a conference speaker get really carried away. We've got to leave everything. It's almost like it's bad for a Christian to own anything, to have any kind of affluence or comfort because the call on every disciple is to leave everything and follow Jesus. Well, it's no use having a passage that we just kind of nebulously feel guilty about and really we just think we ignore it and we just think, well, I don't know what to do with that and so I'll just kind of ignore it. What we need to do is just dig down and figure out what is he actually saying here? And so the first question we just have to ask is when Luke says, and over and over again, it's very important to him, so we have to understand what does this mean? When Luke says to the disciples, and he does it over and over again, I'm going to show you another passage in just a moment, but when Luke says the disciples left everything to follow Jesus, what does he mean they left everything? So first question we'll ask is, does he mean that the disciples weren't allowed to own anything? That they got rid of all their possessions, they hawked their furniture, they hawked their homes, and they put their kids out on the street and their wives on the street, and then they left everything and followed Jesus, but they didn't have any possessions because, and this is where some kind of radical sects of Christianity take it, that it's not good for Christians to own stuff. It's not good for Christians to be well off. Well, let's, let's see if that's what Luke means. Interestingly enough, if we go later in this chapter, same chapter, chapter 5, we have another calling of another disciple, which is uh, Levi, who was a wealthy tax collector. And we're going to find something interesting here. So let's read this. The same, same chapter, just a little further down. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he, that's Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me and leaving everything. This is important to Luke. All the disciples left everything. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him, okay? But now what's really interesting is, very next verse, we're going to see something very interesting about what Levi still owned, even after he had left everything. 
And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. So, okay, now this is interesting. Luke says he left everything to follow Jesus. In next phrase, we find uh, that Levi still owns a house, and at the very least, a big table, and has the means to have a very large party, a great feast, okay? So obviously in Luke's mind, and I'm going to show you another example in just a moment, but obviously in Luke's mind, when he says leaving everything, he does not have some kind of rigid vow of poverty interpretation in mind where it's, Christians aren't allowed to own anything because right after he says it, we see Levi still owns a house. He can still have a big party with uh, all these tax collectors. And Levi, by the way, wasn't the only disciple who was following Jesus who owned a house. Okay? We'll find this. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 8. And in the Gospel of Matthew, this story takes place long after Peter has been called into, into ministry. All right? And here's what we read. And when Jesus entered Peter's what? House. What? The apostle Peter had a house? I thought he left everything to follow Jesus, but he still had a house. So obviously there's room for Luke in leaving everything. There's room for him that these disciples still own stuff. And Jesus went into, entered into Peter's house. And now look, the next statement is also very fascinating. Peter also still had a family. He saw his mother-in-law. Now here's what I know. Nobody, you know, no guy grows up saying, I want a mother-in-law, right? Okay, now that's not, that's not many of you here today are mother-in-laws and we love you. We should have mother-in-law day or something, right? I've got a great mother-in-law, awesome, okay? But nobody grows up going, I really want a mother-in-law someday, right? You want a wife, and then you get a mother-in-law, right? Isn't that true? That's how it works, okay? So hopefully for you, it's like me, it's for better, not for worse, right? But you get, you get a wife, you get a mother-in-law, okay? So Peter has a mother-in-law, that means he's married. Okay, now that's really interesting, okay? Doesn't say whether he had kids, but probably... Uh, in that day and age, if he was married, he a very good chance he had kids. He has some kind of a family, but at the very least, he's married. So Peter leaves everything to follow Jesus, but he still has a house and he's got a family back home. Okay? Very interesting. So when we read this statement, he left, they left everything to follow Jesus, we've got to get out of our mind this sort of rigid interpretation of that this must mean, and, and kind of every time we read it, we feel guilty because we still live in a nice house or whatever, this idea that Luke means they, they divested themselves of all their possessions and they owned nothing so they could follow Jesus. That's not what Luke means because these guys still own some stuff. Okay? Very important. So when Luke says they left everything to follow Jesus, you say, well, what then does it mean? I think a better way that we could say it would be they left everything behind in order to follow Jesus. And you say, well, what does that even look like? Okay, let me share. There's actually many examples of this today, of people who leave everything behind in order to follow Jesus. And I'll, show, I'll share an example with you that we all know, Pastor Ray. Pastor Ray, let me give you an example of what this can look like in today's world. He was, as a young adult, he was a pilot. He was, his dream job was to fly planes, and he was flying planes. He was making decent money. He was working his way up the ranks. He loved it. And he had four little kids. I'm old enough to have some memories of, the, of this time. And uh, he's flying planes. And then at a conference, God calls him into full-time ministry. Supernaturally, just calls him into full-time ministry. So what did Pastor Ray do? He left his career plans, right? He left that safe salary, that career path, his dreams, all sorts of stuff. He left everything to follow Jesus, to go into full-time ministry. Now, I was alive. Again, like I said, I have some memories of this. This did not mean some kind of rigid vow of poverty that Pastor Ray now got rid of all of our stuff. We still lived in a home at all times when I was growing up. We always had a roof over our heads. 
We always had a vehicle. He worked different jobs, you know, night shifts and stuff to pay for things. We didn't have a lot of money, but we lived. We still had stuff. Does that make sense? And there's different levels to which, to which people leave everything to follow Jesus, okay? Now, some people in some parts of the world literally leave everything. There's persecuted countries in this, in, in, in this world where, where people literally, to follow Jesus, they leave everything. They go into persecution. There's sorts of things. But, but it's not just this rigid idea of a vow of poverty. I mean, I think even my wife, LaDonna, shared that last month, just the whole thing of when I got called into ministry and she left, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of scholarships on the table and a, and a job. She would have had a job, a, a decent government job, left all that to go into ministry. Luke would call that leaving everything behind. You leave a career you leave a certain path, you leave a comfortable salary, whatever it is, and you choose to go into full-time ministry because God has called you. That's what Luke means when he says they left everything to follow Jesus. And again, there's various levels within there. Some people in this world literally do have to leave everything to follow Jesus, but for many of us, it's just a leaving of a career behind in order to go into ministry. Now, the, some of you might be sitting there and you're feeling really guilty now because you're still like, I've never had to leave anything to follow Jesus. So, so when, now when you read this passage or you, when you hear me preaching, you feel like maybe I'm not like a real disciple. Maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I don't really love Jesus because I've never had to leave anything to follow Jesus. I, I had this business when I got, you know, before I got saved and I'm saved. I'm still running this business, same business. I had this certain job before I got saved, and then I got saved. I'm still working in that job. I haven't left. I'm still living in that house. I'm still living wherever it is. I've never had to leave anything to follow Jesus, okay? And so the question is, um, and you might be sitting there going, I don't know how this verse applies to me. And every time I hear it preached, it just doesn't seem to connect with my life, and I don't know how to do it, okay? So the next question we have to ask is, did everyone in the Gospels who became a believer in Jesus have to leave everything to follow Jesus? And right away, I know, like you guys are sitting there and you're going, I kind of see where he's going right now, but this just seems wrong. Because we've heard it preached so many times, right? You got to leave everything to follow Jesus. And now I'm asking, did everyone in the Gospels follow Jesus? And part of us, for some of us, there's this need to be radical, right? There's this desire, like, if I'm not being radical, I'm obviously not following Jesus. But what we need to do is put aside our personal desires to be radical, and let's just look, what does the Bible actually say? Is that a good idea? That, that's what I like. So let's just go to the Bible and let's just see, put aside our desires to feel radical, whatever it is, and let's just see what does the Bible say. Are there anybody in the Bible, in the Gospels, who, who uh, gave their lives to Jesus and, you know, they were believers and they gave their lives to him who he did not say, leave everything to follow me? Well, actually, there's actually a bunch of examples. There's actually a whole bunch of examples. I'm just going to show you a couple, okay? Let's start with Luke, um, uh, what chapter? I have completely lost my mind. No, my place, sorry. <laughs> Luke chapter eight. Uh, the man with a legion of demons, okay? Man with a legion of demons, right? So here's this guy. He's got a legion of demons. I don't know how many demons that is. It's a lot of demons. You don't want to have a legion of demons, okay? So, and he, uh, he breaks chains, cuts himself, runs around, does crazy things, and everybody stays away from him, okay? He's wild. Jesus shows up, right? Commands the legion of demons, sends him in a pig. Famous pig, a bunch of pigs, right? Famous story, pigs go in the water. This man is sitting in his right mind at Jesus' feet, okay? And he is so thankful to Jesus for what he's done. Let's look what happens in this story next, okay? Luke chapter 8, 38 to 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. In other words, he's begging. Jesus, I want to come with you. I want to do ministry with you, okay? I'm coming on the road with you. I'm leaving everything behind. But, now look what Jesus says to him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home. This guy wants to come with Jesus. Jesus, what are you doing? To Peter 
And James and John and Levi and the disciples, he says, leave everything and come with me. We're going on the road to do ministry. This guy says, please let me come and do ministry with you. And Jesus says, go home. He does not tell him, leave everything behind. He says, go back, stay, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And you're going to see this. I'm going to show you one more example right after this, but I just want to draw this out right away right now. One of the very important things you have to see when you read through the Gospels, it's very easy to make generalizations. And people will look at Jesus calling on the disciples, on the apostles, and they'll say, whatever Jesus called the disciples to is what he calls all Christians to, and it's actually not true. Some of the things he called the disciples to are for all Christians, but some of the things he called the disciples to were because they were called to go into full-time ministry. And there's two distinct callings you have to see throughout the Gospels, and they're both equally legitimate. Some are called to go into full-time ministry, and some are called to stay and be a light right where they are. Some are called to leave their careers, their jobs, their various whatevers, to go into the mission field, or just to go into pastoral work, full-time ministry, whatever it is. And some are called to stay, to stay in their business, to stay in their home, to stay in their socioeconomic status and be a light right where they are, to stay on their hockey team, to stay here, to stay there. Some are called to go and some are called to stay and be a light. Jesus says, return to your home. Two distinct callings. So sometimes when people in there tend to be radical, they look at what Jesus called the disciples to and they say, this is for all Christians. Actually, some of that was for full-time workers. Jesus said, I'm calling you guys to come on the road with me and minister with me. But to some, he said, I want you to go home and be a light there. Let me show you another example of this. Someone called to stay, uh, and, and it's another uh, tax collector. And by the way, there is a sense in which we are all called to give up everything for Jesus. And I'm going to show you what that means in just a moment. But we first have to get through this rigid sense of this, you know, leaving, literally leaving everything in order to follow Jesus, and, and we'll find out what that means. But let's first go to Zacchaeus. I showed you an example of a tax collector before Levi, who was called to leave his tax collecting and go into full-time ministry with Jesus. Here's another tax collector, famous one, right, Zacchaeus, and, and Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right, and he climbed up in a tree, and, and, uh, and Jesus goes to his house, and he gets radically saved, right, and he's a, ta- he's a chief tax collector, so he's got tax collectors under him. He's a very wealthy man. In verse 9, look what it says. Jesus says, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. So in other words, Zacchaeus truly did get saved. We're going to meet him in heaven someday. I can hardly wait to meet him. He's going to be, I think he's going to be a pretty cool guy, okay? But today salvation has come to this house. Jesus says, Zacchaeus is saved. There's no question he's saved, okay? He's going to be in heaven for eternity since he also is the son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. But you know what you won't find anywhere in this passage? Jesus telling Zacchaeus, follow me. Now, we've turned that follow me statement into something, you know, and so there's a sense in which we all follow Jesus as we're walking with him. But when Jesus used the phrase follow me, he was actually calling a person into full-time ministry. He was saying, leave what you're doing and come with me on the road. And he nowhere says that in this story to Zacchaeus. Why? Zacchaeus was called to keep being a tax collector. Not the same way he was a tax collector before. Oh, no. It was going to radically change the way he was a tax collector. But Jesus didn't call Zacchaeus out of tax collecting. He called Levi out of tax collecting, come and follow me. But Zacchaeus, you stay there and be a light. And you say, well, are you saying that the people who are called to stay, there's not going to be any change to their lives? There's not going to be any change to the way they spend their wealth or whatever? Oh, no, 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 no. That I'm not saying. Okay, and if we read the verse before, we're going to see that Zacchaeus' life and, and, and wealth was radically impacted by his conversion. Look at verse 8 here. I left a space there. 
And, uh, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Okay? So Zacchaeus wasn't called to leave everything going to ministry, but he did get called to radical generosity and radical integrity. And every Christian, okay? Let, let me just bring this together. Every Christian is called to radical generosity and radical integrity. Some Christians are called to leave everything and go into full-time ministry. Some Christians are called to stay where they are and be a light. All Christians are called to radical generosity and radical integrity. Does that make sense? Some are called to full-time ministry. Some are called to stay. All are called to generosity and integrity. That part goes all the way across. Now, some of you might be sitting there and you still don't feel quite right. Surely there's a verse somewhere that says, isn't there a verse somewhere that says, in order to be a disciple of Jesus, we all have to leave everything. And it's true, there is a verse. That's an important verse, Luke 14, 33. Let's go there. But now that we have this background information, we can look at what this means and not take a rigid interpretation of it. We can look at it and see what, what Luke is really getting at here. But in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to a crowd. He's not just speaking to his disciples. So this is for all of us. And he says this. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, okay? Anyone, now we got to take that. That's Jesus speaking to a whole crowd. We have to take that statement very seriously. This applies to us. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be a disciple of Jesus, okay? But now we've been looking at these nuances. Clearly, the disciples of Jesus didn't get rid of everything they owned, Okay? So somehow it's possible in here, and some people weren't even called to leave their jobs at homes. Some people we see, we also showed you examples already, were called to stay where they are and serve Jesus. So somehow this renouncing everything sometimes can look like giving everything up, but sometimes it can look like you still have that stuff. So the question is, for those who are called, I mean, this is easy. For those who are called, you know, into the mission field to literally leave everything behind and go to a persecuted country, this verse just is, is very easy to apply. And some are literally called to leave everything. That's they're renouncing. But what does this verse mean for those who are called to stay and be a light? Which is most of us. What does this verse mean for those of us who are called to stay and be a light? Let me put it into words for you like this. this is, there's two ways we can renounce everything for Jesus. You can either leave everything for Jesus or you can use everything for Jesus. Two ways to renounce everything for Jesus. You can leave it all for him, or you can use it all for him. Both of them are legitimate forms of renouncing all for Christ. Does that make sense? So, so Zacchaeus wasn't called to leave being a tax collector. He wasn't called to just get rid of all his stuff. But what's the first thing he do? He gives 50% away. He goes into integrity. What happens? He says, I'm going to use my money. I'm not going to get rid of all my money, I'm gonna, but I'm going to use my money now for Jesus. And I've read of, of business people you know, uh, who are who successful business people who their goal in life is to it's called reverse tithing and reverse tithing right tithing is 10 percent reverse tithing is where you give away 90 percent to jesus and you live off 10 percent okay and i've read of people that do that that's an ad, that's an admirable goal that's renouncing everything to jesus i'm gonna i'm gonna use it all i'm not gonna leave everything behind i'm gonna use it for jesus and you might live in a nice home. Jesus isn't necessarily calling you to leave your nice home. He might be calling you to use your nice home for him. But that's, a, that's equally a form of renouncing all for Jesus, okay? But this is where, and I'm just going to take one specific example. Uh, it's interesting. Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple 
okay, if you do not renounce everything. And so, I, you know, Zacchaeus gives 50%, you know, some of these guys are reverse tithing. It's amazing to me how many people in our culture, and I'm not just talking about, and I'm not talking about so much our church, you guys are very generous, but there's many Christians in our culture today that can't even give God 10% of their income. And you go, oh, he's talking about money. I wish he would have, like, can't you guys put that on Facebook before we come, right? So why did I risk these icy roads? He just talked about money. Did he just talk about money, right? But Jesus says, you can't. So I've already told you, renouncing everything doesn't mean divesting yourself of everything you own. But certainly it means if you're not leaving it for him, it means you're using it for him. How can it be said that you have renounced everything to Jesus if you cannot even trust him with the first 10%? If you cannot even trust him with the first 10%, how can it be said that he owns your money? Now you say, why is it that Jesus cares about our money? Okay? It's not that he needs it. Why does Jesus care about our stuff? Why would he say something like this? Why do I either have to leave it or use it for him? And why can't I just have my devotions and love him in my mind? I'll tell you why. As long as your relationship with Jesus is just in your head, It's just your devotions. It's just you singing worship in church and it doesn't touch your stuff. Your stuff is the real world. See, we're not just a spirit, are we? We're also physical beings. We're physical bodies. We need food. We need shelter. We need these various things to live, okay? You're not just a spiritual being. Now, we would love to split it up into spiritual and physical. In the spiritual world, I'll love Jesus in my mind. In the physical world, I'll live for myself and have all my stuff to myself, And do you know that that is not acceptable to Jesus in your relationship with him? And you want to know one of the main reasons why? Because when he gave his life for you, he didn't just do it in his mind. He proved it in the real world. He came down and took on a physical body, and he said, I'll show you how much I love you. I don't just love you in my mind. I'm going to give you my body my whole life. Because to be human is also to be physical. And for some of you, the reason your spiritual life has never taken off is because you keep trying to have a relationship just in the spiritual. And until you let Jesus into the physical part of your life, which is your stuff and your money, your relationship with him will never feel real. It can't feel real because you haven't brought it into the real realm. Let me use an example. Imagine what kind of a marriage I would have with my wife, LaDawn, okay, if if we didn't share our stuff. Okay, let's think about this, okay? It doesn't sound too bad off the top. But imagine I just love her in my mind. Wow. Writing her notes all the time. Mmm, I love her. Telling her profusely, I love you. Oh, I love you. Spending time every day journaling, I love her. Okay? But when it comes to the house, you get your own house. (laughs) My money buys my house, you buy your own house. Comes to the bed, I buy my own bed, you buy your own bed. What kind of a marriage would that be if we didn't share our stuff? it wouldn't be a marriage, would it? Isn't that true? Am I right? Am I right? I can, I can every week put my hands up in the air and say, I love my wife. And every day I love her. I love her. I can spend time thinking about loving her. But if it doesn't come to sharing my stuff with her, it isn't a marriage. Did you know it's the same with Jesus? You can come to church every week. Oh, I love Jesus. Wow, do I love Jesus. I love Jesus. You can have your devotions every single day, and you wonder why it doesn't feel real to you. Until you share your stuff in a real world with Jesus, it's not real. It's not real. Now, this isn't a, this isn't a mad message. This isn't a you-have-to message. This is actually about your joy with God message. So let's go back to Luke 5, and let me show you some of this, all right? Let's go back to Luke chapter 5, and I want to show you there's actually a lot of joy in this. And um, 
If we go back to Luke 5, we set, this, you know, set the, the setting again. Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. Crowds are pressing in, okay, and they're pushing on him, and he's preaching to them, but it's getting too close. He can't preach. He's got to go out on the water, okay? So he, he, he takes Peter's boat, and he says, Peter, take your boat. Let's go out in the water, and I can preach from there, okay? Now, most of the time when we read these stories, we just read right over the details, and we don't bother to stop and ask, why did he do that? We don't bother to stop and ask, why did he need a boat? You ever think about that? How many of you have read through the Gospels? How many of you know that there were times when Jesus just walked on the water? I'm not talking about the fact that he could walk on the water. He actually did walk on the water, okay? So there's no question about could he do it. He could do it. He did do it in the Gospels. There were, there were, at least once, he went out on the water and just walked on the water, okay? So the question is, here at the Sea of Galilee, why not do the same? Just back up. Can you imagine he's right against the beach and then he, and just chuckling to himself and just kind of back out onto the water? And everybody's going, mind blow! Like, they're all paying attention now. And he's just preaching, standing on the water. That would be amazing, right? He doesn't do that. So why wouldn't he do that? He doesn't need Peter's boat. He can really wow them if he just walks on the water, which he has done at other times. So why doesn't he do that? I'll tell you why. Because this is not just about him preaching to the crowd. This is about him getting to do something with who? Peter. And Peter, he knows in his love for Peter... This is Peter's chance to get to know Jesus. And all he wants from Peter, he doesn't want something from Peter that Peter doesn't have. He just wants Peter to give him what he does have, which is a boat. It's Peter's stuff. So Jesus says, Peter, I'll tell you, this is how I'm going to get to know Peter. And he's so pumped about it. He says, Peter, let's use your boat. Let's go out there. And so Peter lets him into the boat. Okay. And so what happens? Okay. Well, let's read this. Verse four. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. We did that already. Now, I wonder how many of us here this morning are at that place in our life, somewhere in our life, we did that already. I've tried this or that or this or that, and nothing seems to make ends meet. I can't make these finances work. I've tried this or that or this or that with the marriage, but we just can't make it work. We did that already. But you know what's amazing? When Jesus comes into your boat, suddenly things that didn't make ends meet before start to make ends meet. And Peter has just allowed the greatest giver in the universe into his boat. You want to know why some of us are afraid to talk about money? Because we're afraid to let Jesus in. We are afraid to let Jesus into our finances. We're afraid what it would mean if we asked him what he thinks about our finances or what we should do with our finances. We are afraid what he would say. We're afraid to let him into our house because we're afraid what he would ask us to do. You want to know why? Because we think Jesus will take everything and leave us with nothing. We think that's Jesus' heart. Jesus' heart is, if I'm really spiritual, I'm going to give everything away. I'm going to go out onto the mission field in Africa. That's what we think Jesus' heart is, really down deep. That's a lot of us. We're terrified of what Jesus would do if we would listen to him about our money. Because we think Jesus is a taker. But the fact of the matter is, and I'm going to show you in this story, Jesus is the greatest giver this universe has ever seen. And we'll see. He is the giver. And Jesus will never come into your boat or into your house or anywhere that you will let him into and not leave without leaving you a gift. Jesus isn't one of these people that shows up and gives the 10% tip because he feels embarrassed to leave anything less. Everywhere Jesus shows up, he's a giver. He will always leave you with something. And we're going to see that in this story. So Peter says, we did that already. But he doesn't know he just let the greatest giver in the universe into his boat. And he never runs out of stuff. 
So he just loves to give. So let's read what happens next, right? And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And I think Jesus is laughing now because again, he's, he's, well, let's just read it. I'm getting ahead of myself. And their nets were breaking. Their nets were breaking. This is, Jesus doesn't just give them a few fish. Like put your nets over there and hey, we've got half a dozen fish. Jesus gives them so many fish. Look at this. And their nets were breaking. This is the kind of giver he is. Quickly, they signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they both begin to sink. Do you get the idea that Jesus actually, he's got a little bit of a crazy edge to him when it comes to giving? Okay? Jesus is the crazy uncle at your Christmas gathering, right? If he gets your stocking, it's crammed so full. It's making a mess all over the floor. It's so heavy, it hardly hangs on a hook. It's bursting at the seams. Jesus is the one, if you go trick-or-treating to his house at Halloween, okay? And I know some of you are, oh, that's blasphemy. Jesus wouldn't do that at Halloween, okay? Just, you went to his house trick-or-treating at Christmas time, okay? Halloween, he's hiding in his basement. But um, um, anyway, so you go trick-or-treating to his house at Christmas time or whenever, Jesus doesn't drop one candy into the bottom of your kid's bag. He's the one that takes your kid, sucks your kids into the entryway. He piles them so full, they come staggering out of there and their bags are bursting because he's a giver, He's not a taker, he is a giver. And the fact that you've been keeping him out because of fear isn't his loss, it's actually your loss because he doesn't need anything from you. And it wasn't Peter's loss to let Jesus have his boat, was it? It was Peter's gain for Peter to give Jesus his boat. And now look at the effect it has on Peter, verse 8. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, this is just wow, wow, wow. I told you before that if you just keep your relationship with Jesus in your head, it will never be real for you until you let him into your stuff. But I want you to notice, I just, it's right here in this story. John chapter one, Peter met Jesus. He already was a believer. When this story happened, he already believes Jesus is the Messiah. But it's only when Peter gives Jesus his boat that he has this experience with Jesus and now he falls down at Jesus' feet and it hits him in the heart. Now I know who you are. He knew before in his head. Now he knows in his heart. Why? Because he let Jesus into his stuff. And now it becomes real to him. Now I want to finish this message with one question. What do you think they did? Because right after this, they left everything to follow Jesus. So what did they do with this record haul of fish that just about sunk two boats? You know, I can, I can imagine that Jesus might have had to do a little miracle just to get him to shore. Like, I might have overdone that just a bit and just give him a little push to shore that they made it. Okay? Like, I might have given him just a bit too much on that one. So what do you think they did with all those fish at the end of it? Because then it says after that they left everything, right? Did, do you think they just left them all there to rot? Absolutely not. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what they did with them, but I'll tell you what my guess is. I showed you before in this message, and I, and I think I'm right. We'll find out in heaven. You can write down yours, put it in a sealed envelope, and when Jesus comes back, we'll see, okay? But I think what happened is that this is what Peter, because I showed you before, Peter had a house, and Peter had a family, and so did James and John, most likely, or, or possibly some of the other ones. I don't know how many or which ones. I think that this haul of fish went to take care of their families when they went into ministry. I think this was Jesus' first down payment of you come into full-time ministry with me and I'm going to take care of your family. So first, Peter lets Jesus into his stuff. Peter has a real encounter with Jesus. And second of all, Peter gets to know the adventure of Jesus providing for him and his family. 
Did you know that same adventure is open to any believer today, but many believers today never get to experience Jesus taking care of their family because they do it all for themselves and they don't let Jesus into their stuff. Well, that's just a boring Christian life. But if you will let Jesus into your finances and into your stuff, and you will renounce it. Renouncing it might not mean leaving it, but it will mean using it for him. Then you will get to experience Jesus in real ways you never imagined before, and you will get to experience the joy of him taking care of you. So here's my weekly challenge. There's a thousand ways or more to apply this message. Tithing is just one practical way. It's not the only way. This is not a whole message about tithing. This is just one practical way for you to do this. There's many ways. But let me tell you one practical way you can put this message into practice. Perhaps you're here today and you have never tithed. You didn't grow up in a home where your mom and dad showed you the joy of giving to God's work, the, the local church, the body of Christ. And you've just never gone to the discipline. And now you have a budget that's all full and you don't know how, how you're going to do that. But let me challenge you with something, something to pray about this week. And again, this is not, you say, show me tithing in the Bible. Let me tell you something else that's not in the Bible. Read your Bible and pray every day. But we actually know that if you don't read your Bible and pray regularly, your spiritual life is going to dry up. I believe tithing is a practice right there with reading your Bible and praying. It's not about you're going to hell or you're going to heaven if you do or if you don't. It's not about that. And it's not about what you have to do. It's about one of the greatest disciplines you can do to renounce everything without leaving it all, how do you keep in your heart an open frame of mind that it all belongs to Jesus? One of the greatest disciplines you can do is every paycheck you give him the first 10% to his work, the body of Christ here on the earth. And he said, I'm going to give you the first 10%. Now, Jesus didn't say you can be my disciple if you renounce 10%. He said you've got to renounce it all. But if you can't even give him 10, there's no way you're going to give him the whole 100 and you take that discipline, you say, I'm going to give you 10, and this is just a window into everything else, Jesus. I'm opening it up to you. I'm letting you in my boat so that I can get to experience you and see you take care of my family. And you might be sitting there, and you might be thinking, I am scared to death to do this. The more scared you are, the more fun Jesus is going to have with you. <laughs> That's just how he works. I would just encourage you to get a journal and just tell him how scared you are, and then just begin to journal what he does in your life. And maybe you're here today, many of you, here today because this is such a generous church. You already tithe, but you've lost the joy of giving. It's just something you do now. There's no joy in it. Here's what I would challenge you to do this week. Recommit to the Lord that all your stuff is his. And then ask him to show you. Are there places, because what might have happened is you started giving 10% and you forgot that actually the whole 100% is his and you just made this discipline. Now I just do that. And, I, and I, maybe he's saying, I, I actually want you to let me into the whole thing. Not in the sense of get rid of it all. I just want you to let me in. There are so many creative ways Jesus can do. I, we're going to show you this. I, I told you on transition weekend, I really feel two of the words Jesus is saying this church is joyful and generous. And we've been doing some stuff as a leadership team already here behind the scenes that you'll start to hear details about in the coming weeks. But we've been doing some absolutely phenomenally fun and contagious things with our families, drawing our kids into this and stuff with generosity. It is so fun to become a giver and let Jesus into your stuff. It is just so fun. And it makes Jesus so real in your life. So maybe this week you want to just recommit to him that it's all his and ask him for fresh ideas. How can I let you into my stuff and my money? Well, why don't we just give him a moment to talk to us? Bow your heads with me and, and close your eyes. And let's just give the Holy Spirit a chance to talk to us. Thank you, Jesus. First of all, Lord Jesus, I want to apologize to you that we have had a wrong picture about you. We've had this picture of you as a taker 
that you take and take and take and you want to take everything away from us. But Lord Jesus, everything in your word shows us and everything we experience with you is, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That you are the greatest giver in this universe. You are the source of all good things. Lord Jesus, there's a number of us here today that you are calling that you want us to experience that side of you. We haven't been able to because we've been too scared. Lord Jesus, I pray for every person that's going to begin to take steps of faith this week to begin to give you and let you into our stuff, let you into our money, let you into our homes to use our stuff for you. Lord, I pray that we're going to experience you just like Peter did. And that this church is going to be changed and this community is going to be changed. When this church really gets unleashed in contagious generosity, Lord, it is going to transform this community and this country. And I'm just praying that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.